Welcome to Robot Friends, a podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 7, Eigenrobot vs. Default Friend. Hi all, I'm here today with Default Friend. Default, do you want to introduce yourself? I think that's easiest. Feel free to shill <laughs> as hard as you want, and everybody just know that I would be doing it myself if I had a clearer idea of, honestly, you, you do so much, it seems like at this point, that I'm not sure what to emphasize or where, what to cover exactly. So please, by all means, shill hard. It's so funny. I was just talking to Tao about how it's like... <laughs> I basically like I'm like the kid in high school who's part of too many clubs. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, uh, so, that's very strong. What there's a movie about that. Um Rushmore. Rushmore, yes, Rushmore. Uh so I guess that's how I'll introduce myself. I'm default friend and I'm the Max Fisher of Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I mean I know you've got your advice column at defaultfriend.substack.com. Um what what else do you have going on? I saw something post to post AM. Is that a podcast that you're running? I, I tried to search for it and oh, so it's it's on a podcast. It's a it's a live stream, um, and it's sort of a. I mean, it's obviously a rip on coast to coast AM. Um, yeah, so which I don't, we'll, actually don't know what that is. Oh, okay. So coast to coast AM um, was a a radio show. I mean, it's still going on, but it's sort of different um, in texture and quality these days but art bell started it and it's like midnight to 3 a.m and they cover like paranormal topics uh french theories oh yeah yeah i heard about that on i think gaslight hour perhaps covered it um at some point in the last couple of months all right all right okay cool i love it so is this is this paranormal focused but like twitter or do, do you take any of that art bell vibe with you I try. Um, I have a co-host who's actually like much better at it than I am. <clears throat> Littlefoot. Yeah. I don't know if you know him. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we're mutuals. Um, he, yeah, he's like so good at like interviewing people and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's like mostly it's mostly paranormal. Um, the first one we talked like a whole bunch about aliens. Um, we're trying to like avoid. I find that content like this, especially now, always like drifts into psychedelia and we're really trying to avoid that like there's plenty of good people talking about dmt and whatever we really want to you know like if we're talking about aliens we want to talk like aliens we don't like not hallucinations from drugs you've taken like literally like if it's a ghost a ghost well i mean my understanding of ultra terrestrial theory which is certainly spotty is that perhaps there's some overlap you know you, you've got your extraterrestrials who are the more traditional aliens but perhaps there are these ultra terrestrials too which i don't i definitely don't understand entirely i think there's something like extra dimensional and maybe they just sort of phase in and, and they're easier to attract if you're on drugs so I'm not sure if that counts as an info hazard. Do, do you have any info hazards for us, by the way? I'm trying to do a better job of integrating those into every episode. I think they'll just come up organically and I won't even know. If it <laughs> <Yeah>. is. <laughs> <laughs> I find that I'm like so online that like, you know, like when I'm in a real life conversation, I don't even know, like I can't tell anymore, like what, you know, I'm believing as a bit on Twitter, <laughs> like what I actually what like want to take into a real conversation. 
Yeah. So now I'm just, I'm like, I Twitter brain to the max. It's, it's pretty bad. And Corona did not help that at all across several dimensions. Oh God. Right. Well, I, I think, I mean, the, the, there's definitely the saw that first it's a joke, then it's a lifestyle. And I think that's absolutely true in my case. And I've accelerated to the point where I can start out a thread as a joke thread. And by the end of it, I'll have memed myself into believing what the original <laughs> joke was. It's it's very rapid and it's entirely genuine. And when I, I mean, I, I don't talk to people very much anymore, except for my immediate family who are not online. I, I mean, I'm, I'm on leave from work and everyone at work even is a little bit deranged at this point. And that might just be a function of my team or the fact that I'm in data science, but I I think online really has won. It, I mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, I I'm very lucky. I actually I I worked at a very sort of like classic like you know Bay Area like what you think of when you think of like a Bay Area job. And I moved somewhere that was like slightly quirkier because I mean partially because like it was just a more interesting job, but also largely because I was like Twitter has wrecked my brain to the extent that I can't LARP as a normie anymore. Yeah. Interesting. I'm, I think I'm still good at it, but it, it takes some effort. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I, especially if you're not talking to people outside of your family or like interfacing with people in real life enough, it's, it's super hard for me. It's, I, I mean, I really agree with you about like, it starts as a joke or like starts as something you're kind of like flirting with. Cause it's, you're curious. And then you end up like, I actually Googled yesterday how to deprogram yourself because I was like, <laughs> I act like I accidentally radicalized myself by engaging with too many like ideas that are, like I was kind of like one foot in, one foot out with. On yeah. What What are the top three things that you would like to deprogram yourself about? Um, I mean, like, so someone posted this on your your question, like, what should I talk to a default friend about? like red pills for women. I so I went into it like already believing a lot of the things that I'm saying, but I feel like I like accidentally pushed myself a little bit too far to the right whereas before I was like very much in the center like you know, we shouldn't be too permissive, but also if you're too judgmental or you're too restrictive about your expectations for women, then you know, that's that's definitely a problem. But I've like ingested so much like more radical content on that that I find like I started to like seep into my brain and I feel like even my real life behaviors have started to change. I'm like, oh no, like <laughs> I went I went too far down the rabbit hole. I've, I've got to like stop touching this. Okay, I don't I don't understand exactly what you're gesturing at. So is this red pill stuff like if women sleep around they're undesirable forever and men are going to be disgusted with them or something else yeah i mean not so like not not that specifically but like sort of that neighborhood of content like i i started off just by like i think very moderately critiquing sex positivity and then it just like i had to sort of read both sides and i was already so familiar with like you know, like the the stuff we all, you know, we all already know about with sex positivity, like, um, you know, it, like something is 
sort of like uncritically good so long as all parties consent, like that sort of train of thought. Um, so I started reading a little bit more like the counter arguments to that. And I like went too far. And now I find yeah. that like, I'm like, oh no, like I have to, this, I, I, too much. I need to move myself back to the center. Like when I talk about this, this specific topic, I, I want to be, you know, I want to honor both sides of the argument. I don't want to pick a side, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. And so what, what are the right wing arguments against sex positivity? Like, are, are they, are they just kind of boring, basic bitch? Oh, actually sex is bad or, or, or like needs to be tightly controlled or what? I mean, it's, it's, it's mostly like the basic bitch. Sex needs to be tightly controlled. I, I think like, like for me, I wanted to make the argument that like sex could be occasionally casual while still like maintaining a certain level of sacredness. Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously like the right wing argument to that is that it is completely sacred and, you know, the, you have like you strike out on how many times you could, um, you know, you could diminish it. You have like you pretty much should um, treat it as like sex, sex out of wedlock is bad and, you know, this and that. And I'm not like quite that far in my thinking, but I could t- I could tell I could see that that sort of ideology is starting to influence me. And I don't like that. So I'm trying to like, but it, it's so weird how it happened. It was like, act, like, actually, just from like, reading too much of like the same kind of content, I noticed it, like, kind of worming its way into my brain. And yeah, it, it, like, I hate to say it, but it like, kind of made me realize like, oh, shit, maybe like, you know, these kind of like ridiculous criticisms of like YouTube, like I still think they're way off the deep end, but maybe like they kind of have a point because I, I mean, I noticed this happening to me um, with like occult stuff, you know, like 10 years ago at this point, I was like believing yeah. stuff that I thought was like super corny, like six months prior, but it was only because I was just like getting hit in the face with it constantly. So it was really hard to to draw the line between like, this is the stuff I'm laughing at and like sort of engaging with as a hobby. And this is the stuff that, you know, I take seriously. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think, I, I mean, just, just to put my cards on the table and offer a, a third path if you want it. I mean, I, I tend to view myself at this point as not literally, but definitely figuratively and functionally sort of a mystic with respect to sex and possibly almost everything else at this point, but definitely with sex where I see it as a pretty uh, like Bacchanalian thing and not in the sense of not, not, not in the shitty boring sense of, you know, Oh, let's just go have a party and get drunk and we're going to fuck and it's great. And then we get up the next day and everything's cool, but more in the sense of, you know, like the Bacchae, like this is, an incredibly powerful force that will overwhelm people and topple Kings and leave, you know, men and women torn to shreds in the wood by my nads. And I think my main objection to just the really casual, ha you know, consent based view of sex positivity is like, no, sometimes this is terrible and people destroy their lives over sex. And 
I, I don't think that you have to view this as necessarily good or necessarily bad, but you really should respect it as something that's powerful. And I, that's really my main critique of the left on sex at this point, that, that yearning for a zipless fuck seems very misguided to me. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a great point. I, 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 I agree with that. I mean, and that's, that's sort of where I, that was, that was my starting point. Um, that there's just no, like, there seems to be, I get, I get the most criticism when I say like, you could have too much or like, there's such a thing as sort of becoming too decadent or, you know, like drawing any boundary or line at all um, seems to get a lot of pushback there. It feels like at least with the people I'm engaging with, this might not be everyone ever, but it's like people really want to believe that you could turn the dials to whatever you like. And as long as you, is you're saying yes, it's it's fine, and there there will be no knock on effects. There's going to be no impact other than the impact that you expected going into it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I I mean, with sex and that that kind of culturally left view of it, I just want to be in their face with a bane mask, asking them if they feel in control at you know whatever <laughs> depth of depravity they're they're at. And I say this is somebody who's done a lot of fairly non-conventional wild shit. And I, I mean, like, you know, again, I don't think that there's anything intrinsically wrong with it, but I do think that you have to respect it as a kind of, you know, transcendental and wild state over which you just are not going to have control. So yeah. Um, anyway, end rant on my part. Um, (laughs) but okay. So, so like there's sex and there's weird cult shit. I, I think with myself that kind of, and radicalization isn't quite the right word, but one thing that often leads me to abandon more conventional views is I'll see somebody saying something silly and, or unconventional or wild. And then I'll see somebody who responds to it with a conventional view and and their arguments will be terrible. I mean, just atrocious. And it's the sort of thing where I wouldn't even consider adopting the, you know, the esoteric view of things until I see somebody argue against them and realize that there's just not that much there. Is that an experience that you have? Oh man, all the time. I mean, I think part of it for me is like I'm just easily influenced. So whoever is making a compelling enough <laughs> argument. Yeah. Well, right? that's good but though. Also, yeah. The other thing is though, like, there's plenty of like very good mainstream perspectives um, that people believe they don't know why they believe them. So they're kind of parroting people who do know why they believe them. And then when they have to, it's it's like when you know how to get the right answer in a math problem, but you can't, you don't know how you got there. Um, yeah. you know, they, they just can't show their work. And I actually feel like I, I was just writing something on my sub stack about this. And I might scrap it. So I'll kind of explain it here. Like, I think I end up confusing people a lot because I do have these like mainstream opinions mixed in with a lot of like esoteric or like off color ones. And a lot of them I've gotten to by like intuition or because like I have been easily influenced and like, you know, somebody else's argument has like felt kind of like, you know, just intuitively right to me. And then I can't, then I'm put in the position where like, oh shit, I, I actually don't know why I believe this. 
And I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of embarrassing to admit, but like, fuck it. I get, you know, <laughs> I, I, there's a lot of stuff I'm like, Oh, well I just, it felt right. So not, you're, I don't know, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's not really something that I align with. It just felt right at the moment. Yeah. Are, so the, the thing where you're talking about people sort of forgetting how they got to an answer, are you familiar with the case of the British Navy and scurvy? No. So during the age of exploration, at some point, the British Navy figured out, and I can't remember whether it was limes or lemons, and I wish they started with different letters, but they found out that they could extract juice, I think from lemons, and add it to... Um, add it to the rum that they had on the rum. I, the details are not important. Basically they figured out how to cure scurvy. And then as longer ocean voyages dropped off and ships were able to make more frequent port calls and move more quickly as they became better built, scurvy dropped off on ships partly because they had, you know, initially figured out how to cure scurvy, but also because vitamin C was just more readily available as sailors were able to make these frequent stops. And at some point they swapped out lemons for limes or limes for lemons for, for economic reasons, just expecting that the other was going to do about as well, but it didn't. And so their, their scurvy cures on ships stopped working, but they didn't realize it until they started making these longer voyages again, I think to the Antarctic. And suddenly people started dying of scurvy again, and they had no idea why this was happening. And they, they had ultimately just forgotten how to cure scurvy. It was this incredibly large problem that as a result of, you know, sort of knowledge attrition had, had just become a problem again. And I, I don't know, does that map onto what you were talking about? Um, that's, I think that's a different phenomenon, but I think that's actually like super interesting. Uh, just like forgetting what worked and why it worked. I guess yeah. I, I'm more talking about people like, I mean, yeah, I just like, like people believing something, but they don't know why, like why it was working. This seems like slightly different. Like this is forgetting like what worked less, you know, less of the why though. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. It's, I mean, I, that that feels like an entirely so there's there's that's the third of an interesting class of problems that I'm maybe going to end up spending a lot of time thinking about related to institutional and social decay. The other one being Sarah Perry wrote an essay a while ago about sort of these second order load bearing features of institutions where her example I think was how working in the field you know, harvesting crops with manual labor had the initial function of like producing food for people, but it also had this important secondary characteristic of letting people engage in physical activity and, you know, not completely degrading into whatever the hell we are today. And so when you have an institution like that, or just some like little, little function of like sub function of society, and you find a better way of doing the thing that is its explicit purpose, you switch over to that, but then you lose that that secondary element that was in some way load bearing and suddenly, you know, everybody is obese. So I think all of these things have to tie together. I wonder if it's worth formalizing this in some way, or maybe it's just like, nah, this is just always gonna happen and you don't even notice until it's it's already happened and 
<laughs> it's just really hard to build up a, a set of knowledge about how societies work. I think, well, I mean, I think a lot of the thing, thing is like, we don't, we don't put stuff in context, right? Like we try to fix problems without fully understanding what the problem is and why things are the way they are. Um, like that, like that's a great example. Um, another one is like, like Uber Eats, for example, Uber Eats uh-huh. solves a bunch of different problems, right? It's like all the restaurants and like maybe like bodegas and stuff are in one place. So you could see, you could see it very easily. You, it's a, you know, streamlined way of ordering. You, you have full access to the menu. I mean, it just, it does so many things, but then you miss, you know, you, you, you miss like the ambiance of the restaurant or you, you miss, you know, calling the business up and forming that like neighborhood relationship. And there's, there's tons of things that it's cutting out. And I think what happens is people forget like, well, you know, what was useful about that interaction in the first place, because it's just now so much more convenient and so much smoother. And I think yeah. tons of things, like, I mean, like hundreds, thousands of, of things like this. You know, actually this, and this is a bit silly, but I think it captures the same thing. So a bunch of us have been playing World of Warcraft lately. And specifically, we've been playing World of Warcraft Classic, which recreates this very large um, MMO in the state that it existed from roughly 2004 to 2006. And simultaneous with World of Warcraft Classic existing, there's there's the retail version, which has been continuously updated for 15 or like 15 years, 16 years, something like that. Some some immense period of time with lots of refinements in the way that the game works and. I actually find that the older game is more fun and more almost immersive just because the the retail game has had all of these weird clunky features sanded off and everything operates in this very streamlined smooth fashion and on one hand everything is more convenient and all of the parts of the game that are allegedly fun are directly in front of you and easily accessible and you don't have to try so hard to you know grind dungeons to find specific items and all the classes have kind of coalesced around you know these these undifferentiated modes of operation and i think maybe there's something like that with uber eats where instead of having some restaurant that you know that exists and it's really good and maybe you've you know spoken with the servers or you know the owner or something it's just a series of of restaurants that are slotted into this homogenizing homogenizing platform because you can't get that that entire set of flavor that you might have if you had to go and actually tromp through the restaurants and so in some way even if it's a better service in terms of getting you food it doesn't feel as special or it doesn't feel as real even I well I mean I think a big part of that is like people forget that stuff needs to suck for other stuff to be good. Yeah. Um, and you it, it's kind of like I don't know I I I grew up in a very weird situation where like I I went to this school where I was like surrounded by very rich people um but I myself didn't grow up very wealthy and I would find that like very like the children of very high net worth people they rebel by like picking stuff that's like less good than what their parents give them. Um, like one really stupid example is like, there is this very nice expensive movie theater 
um, where like tickets were like $25 a person. And this is, you know, this is in the nineties. So it's not like that's, if you think about it, like that's a lot of money and they would just like go to the, like the shitty movie theater where it was like $6 a ticket. And like, it's like the seats weren't as comfortable and it was a, a an expression of rebellion. Cause like all the parents hated like the location. It was considered like really low class and they didn't understand why like all the kids wanted to hang out there. And it's because like it had other things like, you know, the shittiness of the movie theater was part of the experience and everything being fun and clean is, or sorry, everything being clean and polished isn't as fun. Yeah. I, that reminds me of a group of people that I hung out with in the, the late aughts in, in Richmond, Virginia, which was a, a pretty interesting place socially at that point in time. It was it was very hipster in that kind of odd sense. You know, everybody was into, into the music scene and the core group of people that I hung out with spent a lot of time living in this completely shitty house that they had bought with their trust fund money. I think none of them had jobs. All of them spent their days drinking just a lot of PBR smoking cigarettes. Um, and, 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 you know, they could have afforded much better. They probably could have, pursued relatively lucrative careers, but they didn't want any of that. They, they wanted to drink fucking PBR and hang out with, you know, whoever I was back then. And, uh, they knew moot moot was in the area, just, just that sort of a scene. And that has me thinking now. I mean, I was, I was definitely not that kind of rich growing up and, you know, my parents were fairly solidly middle-class. There's not really even much of an upper middle-class in Minnesota or they're there wasn't 15, 20 years ago, but even past that, I think they lived their life in a way that led me to believe they had less income than they did. And I always felt just a little bit poor, even, even in this middle-class area. And I later found out this is a complete lie and they had just been saving huge quantities of money. And at this point, whenever I talk to them, talk to them on the phone, I, I just harangue them to go and do nice things for themselves because, you know, God knows they can afford it at this point. But I think that was maybe good for me to do as, or, or good for me to experience as a kid, just not, not actually thinking that I had any money. And I don't know what, what do you think of that as somebody who grew up in maybe a more, um, a, a more mixed sort of social setting with maybe some really wealthy kids like, do, does that seem like something that would have been better for them? Um, like, sort like of like if, forcing themselves into a more middle class environment. Yeah, or or just not even like suppose that that you were a rich kid and your parents didn't act like they were rich in the sense that they bought like you know ten year old used cars and and you know picked up five dollar jeans from I don't know like the the thrift stores. And I guess you can't even do that with thrift stores anymore because everybody who's rich goes and shops at thrift stores anyway, Be just because of the thing that you're talking about, right? Like I could go and pay $200 for a pair of jeans, but I would much rather go and get something more interesting from, from value village, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think like being aware that you have access to, you know, almost everything, it, it does two, it does one of two things, right? Like either you resonate with that lifestyle and you continue to pursue it and stuff sort of loses its value or you end up seeing like the less, you know, scare quotes, of course, like the less good version as exotic and more desirable. 
Um, yeah. So there's like, you either become kind of a snob or like you're kind of fetishizing what you think the other half lives like. Um, so I think it's better like maybe if like you just don't know and like you kind of, you get the stuff that you need. Like, yeah. you know, your, your car is paid for, but it's not the best car. You get access to good doctors. But then, you know, like you get some curveballs so you don't start taking things for granted. But you're also not putting like your vision of the other half on a pedestal. Yeah. Have have you heard William Shatner's version of common people? No, I haven't. It's it's shockingly good. He did a collaboration okay. album with I think Ben Folds. No, maybe it wasn't Ben Folds, it was the other guy. Um but yeah, William Shatner, Common People. I I'm sure that would get flagged for copyright, so I'm not going to put it in the podcast, but do yourself <laughs> a favor, audience, and and check it out. Um interesting, yeah. So Okay, so I'm I'm going to pivot at this point to something else. Um, so you're writing an advice column now, and um, that is super interesting to me. And I'm curious, partly what I'm curious most of all what you've learned about common neuroses that people have, and and I'm curious what you would just like to shout and broadcast as as general points of advice that people just seem to fuck up over and over and over again because there's got to be something right i mean the the thing i get the most is i'm a 25 year old male living in the bay area and dating apps aren't working for me what should i do which is a hard question (laughs) to answer because like and i'm actually surprised that i'm still getting it now because i would have thought that most of this demographic would have left the bay area at this point yeah um, I mean, and when I say like, I have gotten this question over 200 times, like it is that, that is like wow. one of the most common questions. Um, the second most common question I get is like some iteration of like a woman has a friends with benefits who doesn't want to be in a relationship with her, but she, you know, like the friendship is like really deep allegedly and you know, it's, it's, it's clear that she's sort of trying to like backdoor her way into a relationship and yeah. trying to figure out which levers to pull, um, usually sexually to sort of calm the guy into seeing her as girlfriend material. Um, uh. so, so one thing I always, I like it's become, it's become a catchphrase of mine almost at this point is like, you can't use sex to engineer your way into a relationship. It's never going to work. Like I, this is a little bit crass, but like women I, actually try to do that. I, I don't know, but it like, it kind of, it kind of reads as though, like, I, I just wish I could tell people like, it doesn't matter if you gave him like a super good blowjob or something. Like he just, he doesn't like you that way. It's just, just move on and block him on everything and never look back because you are in love with him or you want him to be your boyfriend and he does not see you as girlfriend material and you're going to be in the friends with benefits ghetto for life. And yeah. you, you know, it's been like, the the one like the I I've only actually answered this question twice, um, but it's also like I've gotten it like fifty times or something. The the one time I did answer or like my one like big answer to it was this woman who sent me like a like she was having some kind of panic attack. She found me. She sent me a whole bunch of messages, and it was like she'd been in this situation for over a year. And I oh, was no. so sad. I was so sad. And I like couldn't tell if she was like in denial or like 
I mean, you know, and I'm not trying to like belittle her, like make fun of her or anything, but it was just like, where, how did we get to this? Why are so many people having this problem? Like it's, it, it was just so heartbreaking. Yeah. I, man, I always, I think I could always tell when something was going to end up like that. And I, I never really dated casually much. And usually the reason would be that I, I could tell when I was about to put somebody in that situation and I just hated it. it made me feel terrible. So, I mean, I just avoided that, but maybe other people don't have that kind of, it wasn't even scruples so much as just, um, I think kind of an empathic reaction to it. Like, I don't know, you can tell when you're putting somebody in a kind of emotional state and I, I just, you know, saw that reflected back at me and hated it. Well, yeah, that's, that's my other question. Like, I can't imagine it's like one thing I, I, so I can't imagine it's comfortable for the guy. I mean, I think something that happens a lot that like people actually don't really talk about is like, you know, there, when you put a woman in sort of a desperate situation, and I remember seeing this a lot, uh, like more in my like early twenties and like college and a little bit into my mid twenties, like women sending like a bunch of text messages and sort of like blowing a guy up and like kind of intellectually knowing that they were never going to get a response, but just sort of having this kind of meltdown from a place of like deep pain and rejection. And I see it as a parallel to the like question mark, question mark, question mark. All right, fuck you, bitch. But like, this is the woman's version of it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm like, like men surely know that this, especially like men who are, in the position where they are, they do have like a lot of sexual partners or they, you know, they are, it it is a, it is easier for them, which I know is not every guy. And a lot of people struggle for struggle with it. But like for those who don't, I, I don't understand like why, like they have to see the red flags and they, I don't understand why they want to put themselves in this uncomfortable, uncomfortable position over and over and over again. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, for me, one of the worst feelings in the world is sleeping with somebody and then like afterward, just wishing they weren't in your bed. I mean, it's terrible. It's, it's, it's just awful and endlessly awkward. Maybe I just feel awkward more intensely than, than other people, but yeah, I, I, I don't quite get it. Yeah. I don't, I don't get it either. I, you know, I, I, I wish that more women follow because I, I do think women have like an intuition that you know it's just not going to work but and yeah. I wish more women like followed that intuition um I also do think like a lot of the people who are reaching out to me about these two issues specifically like know the answer but they need to talk it out um and they need a space to be validated and they almost like need permission to let go so yeah. I think that's also part of it um it's yeah, it's a it's a really hard hard thing, but it just seems that like for you know they're on the same spectrum of problem like the twenty five year old guy in the Bay Area and the woman who kind of can't let go of the friends with benefits. It feels very like similar in character. Yeah, you know, I think a big thing that a lot of people have problems with is just just using their fucking words, and I don't mean that as a cruel criticism because it took me a long time to learn how to do it but just just saying what you want and expecting somebody else to respond to that and then if they don't 
like moving past that person. Like it seems like a basic life skill, but also something that people just really struggle to do. I, well, I don't think people voice what they want because a lot of the times they know they're not going to get what they want. So they yeah. overinterpret the situation and they kind of like, it, it's, a, it's a form of protecting themselves. Like it, you t- people tend not to say like, hey, want to go out on a date if they think that person is going to say no. So they try to like, all right, if maybe if I ask her to coffee, it'll turn into a date, which obviously is like, it, you know, how often does that work? Yeah, I I think I th- I was able to figure out, and I don't know how common this is, but and and I don't know whether there's like a like parallel across genders, but I think by the time I was in my early mid twenties, I could usually tell when somebody wanted to go on a date with me, and so asking became really easy because it was like like all right, we've been flirting, we've sent these like series of signals back and forth, and in this very guest culture way. I know that asking somebody out is going to be something that's going to be received well, but I don't know. Can most people do that? Is that an unusual skill? I don't think so. I think that people don't like to read the signs. Um, I think most people probably know. I mean, here's, here's the other thing that I've picked up on people. When people ask you a question or like they ask for advice, they know what the problem is and they know what the solution is but they don't want that to be true. So they ask a third party for advice and either you're like the tough love is usually just validating what they already know. Yeah. So, okay. So maybe the issue is just being able to look at reality with a really steely gaze and be like, yeah, this is, this is how it be. And, and acting accordingly rather than pretending it's some other way. Yeah. Which I mean, it can be really hard to do that you know you don't you don't want to I, I feel like people often just like don't want to face that because it's usually the answer is upsetting some way and yeah. they don't know how to overcome being upset I mean an- another thing I, w- I would love to tell people is like if something is upsetting instead of denying it and trying to you know make lemonades out of lemons what about just being upset and recognizing that it sucks and and letting that wash over you and then trying to solve it instead of just like pushing that away. Um, I I feel like so many of my responses to people have been like, yeah, what this person did was a jerk move and you have every right to cry or even like dwell on it. Uh, But don't, don't try to like, you know, reshape it into this, like, Oh, you deserved it. Or, Oh, they actually meant this. No, they probably did mean, the the least generous interpretation, the interpretation that you kind of have a gut feeling is true and that sucks. And why don't you just, you know, lean into that and let yourself be upset? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if there's like some narrative protection going on too, where, you know, you have a story about who you are and what your life is like and having to change that or update that on the basis of the way that somebody else behaves can be really painful. I think that's true. Um, And I I mean, I also think the thing is like, people do want to give others like benefit of the doubt. So it could be really hard to, to own that, like, there's not always going to be justice. Sometimes people really are mean. Um, Yeah, you know, there's all there's all sorts of different things. Like, you know, you tell yourself the story, and it's like, wow, that actually is really bad. And I don't want life to be that bad. And sometimes it's like, yeah, it, it, it is that bad. It doesn't mean it, you know, abandon hope or like you have to 
give in to the badness, but you have to accept some things are what they are to then find a, you know, an effective solution that isn't just you making, you know, like a, a wall of denial that protects you. Yeah. So, okay. That's, that's pretty interesting. Um, and I don't know how people can actually learn to do that, but, but think about it, like go, go out there and, and consider everyone, like, what are some things that are definitely true that are kind of upsetting that you just haven't reckoned with? And then what are you going to do about it? Maybe. Hmm. So, okay. One, one other thing that you started, I think a couple of months ago now, time is very strange for me is your arranged marriage project. So I, I was curious how that's been going. So that's sort of, I'm waiting, I'm waiting on Justin. Justin's doing, uh, we got a whole bunch of applications and Justin is sorting through the applications and, um, you know, which ones are worth pursuing. But I think like between all his other projects, it's just been, and the, just the volume that we've gotten, it's been hard yeah. for him to make his way through it. So it's sort of paused right now. Um, okay. But yeah, it, you know, it. I'd hate to like take credit for it because it really is Justin's idea and Justin's baby. And I'm, I'm kind of, just help, helping him along with another woman named Raven. Um, and we're, we're supporting him, but it's, it's really like his, his thing. Yeah. So, and, and the, the design of it, I mean, you know, for, for when, for when it's actually executed is how, how committed are people in this project? Like, are they really going to just straight up go and marry each other? Or is is there some amount of flexibility where, well, okay, maybe they can decide to pull out after a couple of dates? So there, there's no, like, a, a couple of dates. It's like you're matched with, you're, you're matched with a, you know, hopefully only one person. And if you don't want to marry that person, tough, right? Like, you're not being yeah. forced to marry them, but you, you can't, like, go through the, the, the process multiple times. Right. Um, Okay. So, so I, you know, it's surprising. I do think a lot of people are serious. I think yeah. a lot of people have, especially the people we've attracted, are just fatigued with dating. Um, they don't. They just don't want to do it. They want to settle down. And I think there's also like a small but like very real contingent of people who like want. I've been calling this like reactionary family planning, uh, uh-huh. but I, you know, I, I think that's like. It, it might stay very niche, but I think that's a real population of people who they're just, they just want to get it over with. They want to get it, get the ball rolling. And more than that, they, they kind of want to identify against this, what feels like the common, like, Oh, I'm going to wait. I'm, I'm living my life very languidly. I, I might never settle down uh, sort of attitude that seems to be a very hot topic these days. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm definitely cautiously optimistic about it. I think the idea of love marriages that is pretty popular, I mean, at least in the United States and probably globally is, I think it's good and it's beautiful, but having been (laughs) unsuccessfully married once, and I would say pretty successfully married now for almost a year, and I, I think there's also this element of just really wanting to be married that's involved in it that that is probably I, I don't know if I would say it's a more important component than actually getting along with your spouse, but 
I think we both came into it with this idea of really deliberately going and wanting to build a life. And that is something that's continued to be true. And I mean, it is, is an important foundational aspect of a marriage that isn't just, yeah, I kind of like hanging out with this person or yeah, sex is good. And I mean, I, I don't know. I'm curious how it pans out on your side, but I think it's a good experiment and I hope Justin <laughs> manages to find time to actually follow through with it. Yeah. And- I, I hope we, I hope it, we do follow through. I think it's really cool. Um, it, you know, it, it really, it, you should actually have Justin on to talk about it because it really is his baby. Um, and I, I've been helped, like my part in it has been one helping him promote it, but two, like we're, we're going to do a pretty lengthy interview process. Yeah. Uh, think helping, you know, doing research and helping determine what are the things that are most important to predict compatibility and we, what, sh- you know, what should we focus on in matching people who more than, you know, being married, like want to build a life together and want to be partners and family planning and settling down. Um, I, I think you're right. I think like people underestimate how much can be overcome. Um, yeah. If you really like determinedly like want to start a family and that's your goal and you almost like fall in love with your partner, like through that process. Um, yeah. It's, it's so funny. You, you brought up um, love marriages. Cause I was, I was thinking the other day, I feel like um, sort of like, like the red pill community slash a little bit of like the black pill community and um, like Esther Perel are kind of all trying to attack the same problem, which is, I, I think like the expectation that your partner should be everything is super damaging. Yeah. Um, and that you should live on like, you know, husband or wife Island is really like, I, I, I weirdly think that like men who are saying you should be more skeptical of women are actually saying you can't rely on your wife to be your everything. And they're doing it in this very like abrasive way that comes off as misogynistic and probably is, but the actual thing they're trying to like deconstruct is like that the way we've centered the love marriage and, you know, had our marriages like replace everything, you know, our friends, our community, hobbies, church, is really damaging. But they don't realize that that's the framework they're working in because I I've noticed like they kind of implicitly accept like oh like this like fairy tale like romance like that is the way things are supposed to be it doesn't but it doesn't work instead of saying like oh wait no like we're just putting too much pressure on our marriages. I feel like I rambled with that. Hopefully I made <laughs> any no, sense it, at all. It definitely made sense. I wonder I I think that sort of placing all of that social function on a marriage. I wonder if that's less a function of, of over glamorizing love marriage and more a matter of just all of these other things disappearing. So that's all that a lot of people have left. Does that, does that sound right to you? I think it's both um, because yeah. like a lot of the early arguments against love marriage involved this um, like I, you know, and, and these are these are arguments that are happening between like the early 1900s, like through the 1950s. So a lot of these social institutions still exist at this point. So I think it's, yeah. I think it's both and the you know decaying of other you know other outlets for socialization 
just accelerated the problem. Yeah. One, one thing I'm looking at this book right now from across the room. Um, don't remember who wrote it. Her, I think her name is Juanita something. And she was the granddaughter of George Bernard Shaw, uh, the intelligent man's guide to celibacy and marriage written in, I think 1929, incredibly good stuff sort of covers this. And, and this idea of like what marriage is going to be like, if you start moving away from these older mores and I honestly, I think it captures just about everything that continues to happen today in in dating and marriage markets. Probably not so much dating apps and and the effect that that's had on on the way that I don't know people even meet each other or interact and and sort of the like disproportionate effect, like the 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 rebalancing away from marriage and towards sex and the way that benefits. I mean, say like twenty percent of men at the expense of a large fraction of women. That's that's the usual complaint, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that is that's the both sides are complaining about, about this. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, so one one other thing I was curious about with um with the arranged marriages, what's the gender balance like? It's surprisingly it's it's not it's not straight down the line equal and and we did have some um non-binary or like otherwise gender non-conforming applicants. Yeah. Um, so it's, but it's, it's not as skewed as you would yeah. imagine. Yeah. And, and do they talk about their motivations for it in, in their applications? Like why they're doing this or, or I'm, I'm curious who's selecting into this. So I haven't seen the individual applications yet. Justin is, is sorting through them because I'm sure we got like, a decent number of troll ones and we don't want to start like vigorously like interviewing people who you know were clearly joking or blowing smoke up our ass or whatever yeah um, but people who've reached out to me personally they they really just are fatigued by dating apps and they're fatigued by dating and they just they're like i trust you enough just pick someone for me yeah god that's that's so bleak. I mean, I say this to somebody who's hardly ever used dating apps. I, I have maybe I've been on maybe four or five dates via dating apps over the course of my life. And I don't think I've had any good relationships that I've really enjoyed follow to that. I mean, it's always just been meeting people through friends and I don't know, whatever this topic comes up, my immediate reaction to even just thinking about it is God, I'm glad I'm not 10 years younger because that would be a nightmare. I think, I don't know if I just got lucky, um, but I don't know. I'm on the fence about dating apps. I think for the most part, they, they don't really work, especially ones like anything where you're, you're swiping without really feeling like you need to, to read the profile. Like one thing I like about hinge is like you're, I'm pretty sure like you press a heart or something like there, it's not as easy as just swiping through if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Um, But I think like this swiping function sort of like taps into this almost like, like pornographic kind of reaction where it's like, you just like, you're just acting on like your most base instinct. Um, Yeah. Okay. That's her. I've never used Tinder. I've only used OkCupid. And mostly when I used OkCupid, it was like old OkCupid where you had a really long profile. So that's, yeah. you know, I, I kind of forgot about OkCupid. I, I wonder, like, 
I think it'd be really interesting to like interview people who went on a lot of okay Cupid dates and then, you know, moved on to like Tinder, Hinge or Bumble and what they feel like the difference is because I don't know, I, I never really used OkCupid, but I, I had a lot of friends who did. And I remember it like being like a very involved thing. And like, it was really interesting and fun to read people's profiles. Yeah. I mean, like you, you had to, you had to express yourself verbally, which is very important for me. I mean, if I can't have a conversation with somebody at length, it, it's, it's going to be a really awkward date. And I mean, you know, that, that's something that's very fortunate with, with moon because I mean, she talks constantly a lot and clearly and it's always interesting but just just adding that friction of expecting people to express themselves with words in some way i think really facilitated the the filtering process yeah i mean the the filtering process I, you know this is not news to anyone it's just looks it feels like and then maybe like other things that are super that are very superficial like height or like where the person works or maybe attends school um depending on your age bracket yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe people are just not very good at identifying what other people, what, what about other people is particularly interesting or likely to result in some kind of a functional relationship. I don't know. I, I mean, we're both pretty weird. I, I remember having a, like, I was definitely, was I, I think we were both drunk. It was one of the few times I checked DMS and we were talking about SAT scores and, and like, you know, I, I, I just genuinely don't know what interactions are like what for, I mean, I think people who, who maybe have kind of a, like, like more normal approach to, to finding people and interacting and maybe Twitter is, I mean, people joke about Twitter being a dating app, but I don't know that that's the wrong thing to do. I mean, I sort of met met moon via twitter and i know there are other twitter couples i mean like antonio and lisa tomic for example are great they definitely met through twitter and i will acknowledge the existence of a secret dm group that i don't actually participate in but but i know it exists that is just continuously plotting to hook people on twitter up whether they want to or not so I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe the trick is just to have some kind of a social presence in a more filtered area and just kind of wait for a collision to happen. I think Twitter is a, a great place to, you know, meet potential dates. Um, and Twitter couples usually end up making a lot of sense too. Uh, because I think like you're usually not going based on someone's looks and you're kind of forced, like people are forced to be like verbally hot, which is sort of yeah. what you're describing with okay, Cupid. Um, I mean, as everyone, I like that, (laughs) you know, I, I think anyone who's been following me for a while knows that I've like, you know, like definitely dated people that I've met through Twitter. Um, because I, I, at one point reached, uh, moon and eigenrobot levels of loudness about it. (laughs) (laughs) Are we loud? Oh no. (laughs) Uh, I mean, this was this was actually like a real criticism I was getting. It was like, DF, like you, you can't, like there can only be one, you know, one couple like that on Twitter. You got to turn the volume down. (laughs) (laughs) We weren't trying to crowd you out. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, it's okay. I, it's for you guys. It's like really cute, but 
this was, I don't know, this was 2019 or something. For me, it wasn't, it wasn't as cute of a look. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say any more about that. Um, um, I should maybe get up and chat with Moon about how her latest OB appointment went. But before that, um, is, is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't hit? I don't think so. I mean, yeah, I think we, we covered just about everything. Okay, cool. Well, hey, Default, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, I'll, I'll get this posted later today. And um, I guess we there, there are some threads here we can follow up on on the timeline. But overall, just great having you on. And uh, thanks, everyone, for making it all the way through. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. It's been great. All right. Take care. Thank <laughs> you.